there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Do you have ADHD or know someone who does? What about depression or anxiety? Well, my next guest is an expert on how Mother Nature and being in the great outdoors, a forest, the mountains, or a beautiful garden in a concrete jungle are proven to help us feel happier and more relaxed. But before I introduce you to Florence Williams, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday with the lowdown on what the five episodes are we're going to be dropping each day that week. Just head on over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org and sign up. It's super easy. Now, my Java lovers, grab your mug and take a chug because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful guest is Florence Williams, a journalist, author, podcaster, and public speaker who is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, and on and on. And She's the author of two books, Breasts, those two things we have in the front of our body, A Natural and Unnatural History. By the way, the title of her book does not say what we have in the front of our body. And The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Florence, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Hi, Andrea. It's so great to be here. I am mildly caffeinated. <laughs> I have to confess that I have the genetic mutation that means I cannot actually metabolize caffeine very well. Did you do 23andMe? Yeah, I did a similar version. And I always knew that drinking coffee made me kind of feel terrible. And now I know why. <laughs> I have well, the gene. how smart for you. And we should also tell Java junkies that you are doing this interview from, as you quaintly described it, a shed behind your house. And that is just so perfect and appropriate that we are hearing the sounds of nature and your dog and whomever else, <laughs> maybe some bird song. During the course of this interview. Yes, I'm actually looking out at a lot of trees and some grass in my backyard. So I can get a little nature fix from my desk in my shed. It's great. How smart of you. <laughs> so Florence, I would like to start with your family's move from Boulder to Colorado, from Boulder, Colorado, rather, to DC a few years back. Can you talk about what happened to you personally after that move? How was your mental health, maybe even your physical health affected by the change of scenery? Yes, sure. I got very sad. <laughs> I had lived in the Rocky Mountains for 23 years, truly my entire adult life. And I was very fortunate to always have trails and beautiful mountains right outside my house. I had a sort of hourly connection to the natural world. And then my family moved. We moved to Washington, D.C. And we moved right into the center of the city. It was really hard for all of us. And for me personally, I felt like a stress bomb went off inside my brain. I noticed the noise and the gray and the sort of Euclidean linear urbanscape as opposed to the mountainscape that I had come from. The traffic circles, everything was overwhelming to my senses. It was overstimulating. And I got depressed. I got anxious. 
I had a hard time sleeping. I just really felt stressed out. And I started to wonder, you know, how much of this is really because the external landscape is being reflected in my internal emotional landscape? And what is that connection? And so that's what really drove me to study a lot of the topics in my book. So interesting. So if you had stayed in Boulder, if you had stayed out in God's country, you might not have had that perspective and what the effect of the absence of it is. Yeah, in some ways, the move was a blessing because it did open my eyes. And honestly, this is the way most people live in the world. We now live in a world where most people live in cities. And in the United States, that's even more extreme. We have 70 to 80% of Americans live in urban areas. So, you know, I was very spoiled (laughs) in my Colorado life. Now I see how most people live. And it's given me a great appreciation for, for what's sometimes lacking in the human scale of our cities? And how do we start thinking about how to get that back? So Florence, what do we know about things like sound pollution and how the sound of whether it's airplanes flying overhead or people honking the horns of their car every minute can negatively affect our mental health versus the effect of listening to birds chirping, to birds <laughs> Well, not surprisingly, living in cities is very stressful. And I don't want to imply that, that city living is all bad. And I have come to appreciate many of them. You know, there are wonderful educational opportunities. There are wonderful job opportunities. There is, for example, greater um, gender equality, better access to medical care in cities. But all that said, psychologists now have a phrase for what can happen to us in cities, and it's called the urban health penalty. And basically what it says is that if we live in cities, if we've grown up in cities, if we spend a lot of time in cities, we are more likely to have mental illness. We're more likely to have anxiety. We're more likely to have things like schizophrenia. We know now that noise pollution can put us at risk for greater cardiovascular disease, including stroke and heart attack. Even when we're asleep at night, if we live on a noisy street or like I live now under the flight path for a major airport, we know that our stress levels even subconsciously rise in our sleep when that truck rumbles by or the airplane passes overhead. And over many years, those small stresses start to accumulate, putting us at greater risk for all kinds of health diseases. You know, I have to say on a personal note, I have been a big nature lover my whole life. As a kid, I used to go and I grew up in Potomac, Maryland back when it was really rural. Mm, And I used to go into the backyard. My parents lived on a couple of acres that backed up into a stream. And I'd go back there with my Labrador retriever for hours and just catch guppies with my hands and just explore. I did Outward Bound, which if Java junkies Mm -hmm. aren't familiar with it, it's an outdoor kind of survival type experience. I did it for a month as a teenager in Maine. I went to college in Vermont and have done lots of hiking and skiing and biking. But I, Florence, didn't make it my professional endeavor to (laughs) dig into the outdoors the way that you have. So how did you get interested in this topic in such a way that you have built your career around it? Well, I've always been interested and fascinated 
by the intersections of the environment and human health. I was an environmental studies minor in college. I've always been interested in environmental health. So, you know, my first book you mentioned was about breasts, but it was really about how modern life has changed our breast health and including how things like industrial pollutants get into our breast tissue and our breast milk even. And that that was kind of a downer of you know, the relationship between the environment and our health. And for this book, it's really the opposite. It was like, how can our environment actually help our human health? How can can we optimize our emotional health? How can we optimize our creativity by immersing ourselves in, for example, nature, green spaces, even urban green spaces, and ultimately the wilderness? I, I feel like this question is so critical to who we are as a species because for 99.9% of our evolution, we lived in natural spaces. Um, we know how to read information from those landscapes. Our nervous system is in some way in sync with a living like that. And when we take ourselves out of that sort of net native habitat and put ourselves in cities, we are just sometimes not at our best. And yet, I feel like there are amazing opportunities for resilience, for urban planning, for our educational institutions. There's just amazing opportunities to try to do it better. So I want to ask you about the Nature Fix, your book in just a moment. But you just said something about how our nervous system is affected by the environment. What did you mean by that? Yes, it's really, you know, in some ways, it seems rather obvious. You know, a lot of us have pets. For example, we have a dog or dogs, and we know that dogs are really happy generally when they're bopping around outside, when they're smelling things and seeing things and chasing squirrels and jumping in creeks. You know, this is an animal using the skills that it was given, using the skills it was born with, using the senses it was born with. And our dogs are so happy when they're outside. And they're sometimes really bored and really listless if they have to be, and, and sometimes they go a little bonkers if they have to be inside a room with four walls. And yet we forget that as humans, we also have kind of a native habitat, if you will. And it's that habitat that we evolved in over hundreds of thousands of years. You know, we are also designed to use all of our senses. We're designed to pay attention to the world around us and to read the landscape. Our perceptual systems, like even the way our eyes move across a landscape, those are systems that evolved in nature. And on some level, our nervous system is just very comfortable, even just subconsciously. When we're outside, we understand what grass and trees look like. We know how to read them. You know, the opposite of that would be like when I'm driving in a traffic circle in Washington, D.C., or crossing a large intersection where there are neon lights and, you know, ambulances and cars honking and planes overhead. It's so overstimulating to us that we actually have to work very, very hard. Our nervous systems have to work hard. Our perceptual systems have to work hard to filter out 99% of what's going on around us just so we can make it across the street, ending up in a fetal position on the sidewalk. Yeah, that um, would that not be good. A lot of energy. <laughs> it would not be good. That, but that act of filtration that we do even in our office lives, you know, we're constantly trying to block things out so we can focus on getting something done. That act of filtration uses up a a lot of energy, a lot of glycogen in our brains. And it makes us actually quite exhausted by the end of the day in ways that we don't even realize. But by the end of a, of a stressful urban day, we're a little bit depleted or maybe a little bit grumpy or a little bit tired. And we don't even really know why. But largely, it's because 
too much going on that we have to deal with. So in your book, The Nature Fix, which I highly recommend Java junkies check out, and by the way, it has fantastic cover art, you share Mm -hmm. your reporting, Florence, from various countries and cultures that you visited around the world, including Japan. Can you please share with Java Junkies the research that the Japanese government did into, and tell me if I'm mispronouncing this, the Shinrin-yoku, the forest therapy trails? Yes. Well, right after I moved to Washington, D.C. and started kind of freaking out, (laughs) I got an assignment. I was really lucky. I got an assignment from Outside Magazine to go to Japan to write about what kinds of cutting edge research different scientists were doing, looking at the relationship between nature and health. First place I went was Tokyo. And of course, Tokyo, it's one of the most stressed out cities on the planet. People work longer office hours, you know, than really any anywhere in the Western world. Very high rates of suicide, high rates of heart attacks. People literally drop dead at their desks. Uh, And so the government for about 30 years has been promoting a practice called Shinrin-yoku, which translates as forest bathing. And there are a number, I think there are over over 48 of what they call forest therapy trails, you know, about an hour outside of Tokyo, where people can go walk in the woods, they can take a deep breath, you know, sort of get rid of some of that layer of urban stress. There are rangers there who will help people actually engage all their senses. And and that's really what forest bathing means. It means using all five of your senses to smell the wonderful aromas of the pine trees, to feel sort of the moss and the wonderful textures of the forest, to really feel that breeze on your cheek, to listen to the creek and to the bird song. They, They have rituals where they drink tea, you know, made from bark or flowers or blossoms of the forest. And in doing so, scientists are measuring different reactions that their bodies are going through. So for example, they've documented that after just 15 minutes of this kind of, you know, forest bathing, which is really just like a mindful way to kind of walk through the forest, that people's cortisol levels, which are a measure of stress, the stress hormone, decreases 16%. Their blood pressure drops 4% their heart rate drops 2%. They have different blood flow patterns in their brains that their nervous system actually is relaxing just a little bit, even after 15 minutes. And there've been a number of research papers about this now. That's really interesting. And I have to say, I try to break up my day. I also have a dog and I work (laughs) from home and I try to break up my day with walks. And especially on a beautiful day like today, we happen to be recording on a gorgeous day here in the Washington area. And taking my dog out, I'm trying to be in the moment and feeling the sun, feeling the breeze. And I will come back in after 30 minutes of being outside in a better mood. Exactly. That's what they're also documenting, Uh, not just in Japan, but in a number of countries now, including the United States. People are documenting an increase in mood, a decrease in feelings of frustration or anger. They are documenting even an increase in creativity. So after a break outside, people will come back to their desks a little bit sharper, a little bit more alert, Maybe their frontal thinking brains, frontal cortexes have taken a little break. And our brains, you know, parts of our brains are like muscles. They need a little break in order to come back stronger. And so when they do, they're they're 50% more creative. They perform better on word tests. <laughs> they're also nicer people. And I think that's been a really interesting and surprising line of the research as well. That people are actually 
friendlier as a result? Yes, exactly. I mean, if you think about it, you know, when you're a little bit stressed out, you're less empathetic, you're less likely to be generous, you're more likely to perceive that you have less time to get things done, you're more impatient. There's been some very interesting new science, uh, what I call the science of awe, A-W-E. And it's kind of what happens to us when we confront something that's really beautiful and kind of vast. And when, when that happens to us, when we see a sunset, perhaps, that we weren't expecting, or we glimpse the moon rising, or a beautiful bird lands in front of us, we step outside of our own personal drama. (laughs) You know, that sort of script going through our brains in which we are the star, right? We step outside of that for a minute, we feel more connected to the world around us. And and it turns out that has really profound consequences to also making us feel more connected to each other. And there have been a number of studies now looking at what happens to people after they even view photographs in a lab of, you know, a whale jumping or a waterfall compared to people viewing photographs of, say, a shopping mall (laughs) or a freeway. (laughs) There's some people who might get excited by a shopping mall, but I'm guessing they're fewer than than seeing a whale jumping up. (laughs) Or if they do get excited, it's, you know, they're excited because they get to actually, you know, buy something for themselves, right? Exactly. (laughs) This is really about um, something other than yourself. And, and of course, religions have figured this out for a long time. I mean, they build these amazing cathedrals that sort of instill awe in us. Political leaders like to try to instill awe in us with this sort of trappings of power. And it's all because it makes us less about ourselves and more about our community. Or we fold more paper cranes to help earthquake victims. Or we have better teamwork in other games and tests. So it's really quite fascinating. So what is that data showing us? And how reliable is it? I mean, are these, what kind of studies are these in terms of the effect of awe on our mood and on our cortisol levels? Well, I think with a lot of these studies, looking at the effects of nature and sort of our emotional health or well-being or our our, um, physical health even, a lot of these studies, it's very difficult to prove a direct cause and effect. And it's also very difficult to sort of pinpoint if something great is happening, why is it? Is it because maybe we put down the phone and even that is relaxing us? We've gotten out of the office or is it actually something specific to nature? Is it something about hearing the bird song? Is it something about seeing something beautiful, the sunset? Is it about perhaps the vitamin D that we get from natural daylight, which we also know is linked to positive mood? I I think scientists are still really trying to figure out what's causing these effects and how much they can actually prove versus how much seems to be very heavily suggested. But when you look at the body of evidence as a whole, and you look at the different, I would say different scales of data from the individual up into the epidemiological, these very large scale studies, looking, for example, at health records in large cities of 400,000 people, how close they live to green space and see that their health seems to be improving. You know, when you look at the scale of all these different studies, there seems to be this cumulative evidence that's really quite impressive, I think. Well, one country that I think has drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, that occurs in your book that you feature in The Nature Fix is Finland. Can you share, oh my God, can you share please what they do in Finland to ward off depression, among other things? 
Finland's a fascinating country because it came to industrialization later than a lot of countries. People who live in Finland today still have parents or grandparents who are farmers. They still have farms where they can go visit. A lot of them have these little sort of country shacks <laughs> where they can go berry picking and swimming in their lakes and tromping through the woods, looking at, at butterflies and collecting mushrooms. They're, it's a very nature-connected people. But like people everywhere in the world, they're increasingly moving to cities. They're increasingly disconnected from that natural landscape. And rates of obesity and depression and suicide and alcoholism are all going up in rather epidemic levels. So researchers in Finland have been studying how much nature do people really need to feel healthy and to feel well. And they've come up with a very specific recommendation. <laughs> and they have a, actually a prescription that they suggest that the Finnish people sort of use. And it's five hours a month of time in nature if they want to actually prevent depression. I love that they call it a prescription. Well, I'm not, I'm not even sure that they do call it a prescription. That's kind of what it is. Although a number of, of doctors, including in the United States, are now, in fact, issuing parks prescriptions or nature prescriptions or outdoor prescriptions to their patients. If you want to prevent depression, go outside a little bit over an hour a week. That translates to maybe two visits a week, 30 to 40 minutes a time. And if you can get 10 hours a month, you know, that's even better. But if all you get is five hours a month, we really think you can avoid depression. It's pretty amazing. That is amazing. So tell us about what some American doctors are doing. Yes, it's quite interesting. There are apparently over a thousand doctors in the United States who are now literally writing down on their prescription pads, go outside to their patients. <laughs> And we see this largely among pediatricians, actually, because pediatricians are seeing their patients who, frankly, are supposed to be running around, right? Kids are supposed to be running around outside. That's how their brains develop. They are supposed to be exploring their worlds. And so many kids aren't. And as a result, we see these epidemics of inactivity. We see epidemics of obesity and diabetes and anxiety and depression in so many children today. And at the same time, recess is being taken away. There are something like 30% of schools in the United States have less than 15 minutes of recess a day. 15% of kids have no recess at all. And I'm talking about elementary schools. So it's something that is endangered, really, this time outside. And pediatricians don't know how to treat these epidemics. They haven't learned in med school. I mean, we just don't have, there isn't sort of a magic pill that's going to make obesity and diabetes go away. And what they're finding is that if they tell these patients, listen, let's look at where you live on a map and let's find the nearest park to your house or your apartment or your school. We recommend that you go into this park once or twice a week. They're seeing some really positive results in these kids. They're seeing joy come back. They're seeing less stress in the families as well as in the children because, of course, the children are bringing their families generally with them. And there's some really wonderful model programs, for example, in East Oakland, California. And these are really underserved populations. There are partnerships that are actually busing, helping bus kids to these parks every Saturday. They're having picnics outside and games. They're playing tag. <laughs> They're looking for frogs. <laughs> and amazingly, some insurance companies and some Medicaid programs are actually paying for these visits. They're reimbursing doctors for these visits, you know, if the doctors go with them and if there's a sort of clinician involved, you know, part of these activities. So so you're now seeing insurance companies just starting to understand that actually this is really critical for people's health. Oh, that is Wonderful. I hope that is a trend that spreads far and wide for sure. I hope so too. Florence, 
in your TED Talk, and I really do recommend the Java Junkies watch it, listen to it. It's really interesting. One of the things that you talk about, and you alluded to this earlier in this conversation, is that time outside in nature can actually help make us more creative. And you shared what you learned about the brain imaging and the data that came from the brain imaging that shows the subgenual, I'm probably mispronouncing it, prefrontal <laughs> cortex quiets down. Could you talk about that for a minute? I can. That particular study has, I would say, more to do with, again, preventing depression than it does with creativity per se. There are other studies looking at creativity, but that study that you're talking about was at Stanford and a psychologist there, Greg Bratman, sent groups of volunteers out to walk for 90 minutes. And he sent some of them to walk in a downtown urban area in Palo Alto. He sent other groups to walk around a city park, not a wilderness area by any stretch, but a nice city park. And he imaged their brains before and after. And what he was specifically looking at was this little section of the brain as you mentioned, called the subgenual prefrontal cortex. And it seems to be part of our brain that's associated with negative thinking, like sort of that that ruminative thinking that we do, you know, when you've had a bad day and you just like keep going over that bad conversation over and over again. And if you have a tendency to do that, it's actually linked to depression. So it can be very helpful for de- preventing depression if we can do something that gets us out of that cycle of negative thinking. And what he found was that in the nature walkers, but not in the city, walkers, that the activation, the blood flow in that part of the brain actually did to quiet down. And that was reflected in questionnaire data in which the walkers who walked in the park said, yeah, actually, I feel so much better after my 90 minute walk. I wasn't thinking as many negative thoughts. <laughs> so, you know, his theory is that maybe the reason it can dep- prevent depression to go outside regularly is that it just gets us out of that sort of particular spot in our brain linked to depression. Great. So what can Java junkies do mm-hmm. now? And in particular, those Java junkies who are either going to school in urban areas, who live in urban areas to help them manage their stress and reduce the presence of cortisol, that stress hormone, in their brains and their bodies. Great question. And I'm so glad you asked because I feel like there are a lot of lessons from this book. I've learned a lot of lessons from writing it. And as you know, I live in a big city. <laughs> right. There are a number of things you can do at different scales. So even this kind of nearby nature can, can really give us some benefit. If you're studying or if you're working, it's great to find a window even where you can have a view of nature. Look up occasionally. <laughs> Let your eyes, perceptual systems, your visual cortex take in some of that beautiful fractal geometry of nature. Some of those beautiful shades of green or orange is the case maybe this time of year. To look outside, take a deep breath. Even that micro break of looking at nature out a window can be helpful. Even better is if you can take a breath break and walk around the block, if you can walk on a tree-lined street or maybe eat your lunch in a park or a courtyard, it may be in your work environment on the weekends or when you have a break, go out for an hour if you can. Go someplace where you can hear bird song, where you can just get away from some of the stresses of urban living and pay attention to how you feel out there. Do you feel better? Do you feel happier? Do you come back, you know, nicer to the people in your lives? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> pay attention to how you feel out there and also pay attention to the surroundings. Like don't just, you know, listen to a podcast, nothing personal. I'm sure your podcast is worth listening to, but take the earbuds out and really pay attention to the space that you're in because the Japanese research has shown us that that helps us get a shortcut to feelings of restoration that are so important. Isn't that great? Listen, there are no sacred cows on this show, okay? (laughs) You don't have to drink coffee. You don't have to listen to podcasts when you're walking out in the beautiful, great outdoors, (laughs) for sure. Florence, speaking of the great outdoors, you wrote a wonderful piece in Outside Magazine about how ADHD is the fuel for adventure. And in the piece, you talk about the fact that ADHD traits are so common among modern day alpinists, rock climbers, snowboarders, other extreme athletes, that that kind of raises several important questions. If adventure sports are such a great fit, for people with ADHD, why aren't more doctors, schools, and families boosting participation in these sports? Because <laughs> it's so much easier to write a prescription <laughs> for a pill that has been lobbied hard by a pharmaceutical company that's making enormous profit from those pills. You know, I don't want to diss the medication, but I do wish that medical practitioners and clinicians in general had a slightly more open mind to some of the other ways that we can relieve symptoms of ADHD. And I'm not saying running around outside is going to cure ADHD. It's not. But people who have ADHD find that they often really thrive when they're outside. And part of that is that when you're outside doing something active, you know, your brain is taking in lots of different cues. It's reading information about the weather. It's reading information about the terrain. You're, you're practicing some sort of skill set, perhaps, if, you're, if you are rock climbing or riding a bicycle. And the ADHD brain really, really thrives in that environment. And in fact, a lot of people who have ADHD, as you mentioned, sort of self-medicate on nature. They self-medicate doing outdoor sports. One of the things I worry about is these days, as kids increasingly spend more time inside, have increasingly fewer opportunities to run around outside and to learn some of those outdoor sports, that we're sort of medicating the adventure instinct and the discovery exploration instinct, the play instinct even, out of so many children today who we just medicate and put in a schoolroom. I was really fortunate while writing this book to spend some time at an adventure boarding school. And everyone in this boarding school has ADHD. The school is called SOAR, S-O-A-R. They also offer a terrific summer camp. And the founders of this camp have really found that you know these kids can learn so well when they're in this exciting, challenging outdoor environment that their brains are really well suited to. And it just makes me sad that we can't offer these kinds of opportunities for everyone because not everyone is going to learn by sitting in a box inside. Florence, just out of curiosity, and if you don't have the answer right now, maybe I can get it from you later and include it in the show notes. But for those Java junkies who may not be connected to a college campus or a university campus right now, what are the resources on the internet? Where can they search the best places for hikes for outdoor rock climbing? Or is there a particular site? I'm sure just by Googling it, they can find it. But is there anything that you're aware of that are more organized, reputable places that Java junkies could check out? 
Um, sure, that's a great question. There are a number of terrific groups out there that offer hikes. There are meetup groups. If you if you go on Meetup, for example, you can probably find hikes going out in your neck of the woods. There are a number of groups that are sort of geared toward different racial groups. There's one called Outdoor Afro that really aims to get African Americans to feel more comfortable hiking in nature. There's one called Outdoor Asian that's similar. Your local REI, which is a great outdoor gear store, offers classes and how to hike, what kind of gear do you need? Maybe you want to try skiing, cross-country skiing or mountain biking. There's some great little free instructional classes for those things as well. And then I also think that, you know, just grab a buddy, grab a buddy and go check out a local park. It doesn't have to be, you know, a big organized deal. It's something that you might be able to just take baby steps if you're new to it and try it a little bit at a time and see how you like it. Yeah, that's great advice. So Florence, you have a new podcast out called The Three-Day Effect. Do you want to tell Java Junkies a little about it? Oh, I would. Thank you so much for asking. I'm really excited about it. We just launched a few weeks ago and it's called The Three-Day Effect. It's distributed by audible.com and you can search on it there. And what we did was over six episodes, we went out for three days at a time with different groups of people who are in need of some nature help. So we went out with veterans who have post-traumatic stress. We went out with a group of heavily traumatized women who'd been sex trafficked. On a lighter note, we went out with a writer who has writer's block and was just feeling, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill neurotic about I his think life. that's our mutual friend, Eric Weiner. Yes, Eric Weiner. Who, and he, he hates nature. He hates <laughs> nature. And so it was really fun to try to convince him, actually, that nature might, in fact, be good for him. <laughs> and, and by the way, we did science in all of these expeditions. We had researchers with us who put us through blood pressure measurements, who hooked our heart rate, you know, our heart rates up to different monitors. We tested our cognition, you know, at various points. And so we really took some of the tools of the laboratory outside to look at these different groups. And we ended up with six episodes and it was really a lot of fun. Well, we'll have to make sure to check that out. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Florence, I ask all time for coffee guests the following questions, one of which is, (laughs) (laughs) if you could share a time from your professional life when you struggled. Some people like me were fired from jobs. Others had terrible bosses or supervisors or very challenging colleagues, or maybe were in over their head in a particular job, whatever the case may be. Could you share an example of something that you went through and more importantly, how you persevered and what lessons you learned in the process? Sure. (laughs) You know, as a freelance writer, I have had to learn how to make friends with rejection. You know, I mean, the way the way freelancers work is we basically put, we pitch ideas to editors who often say no, and sometimes they'll say yes, and then we get an assignment that we're really excited about, and we'll work very hard to write a story, and they'll read it, and they'll say, actually, we don't want it anymore. And when I was in my 20s, I got an assignment from the New York Times Magazine, which was really prestigious, and I was feeling quite pleased with myself, and I worked really hard on it, and they ended up knowing it. And, you know, that's just something that happens in this industry. It happens all the time. And it actually happens quite frequently, apparently, with the New York Times Magazine, (laughs) which I didn't know at the time. But I was devastated. I had told my friends I was writing an article for the New York Times Magazine. Isn't this great? And then all of a sudden, boom, I was not. 
left anymore. And I think at that point, I could have just given up and said, this field is too hard. It doesn't feel good to be rejected. I don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, it was, it was really, it was pretty, it was devastating. And it, it, I think it set me back some time. But I was living in the middle of the mountains in Colorado, and there weren't really a lot of other job prospects out there for journalists. It wasn't like I could just go find a staff job for a great newspaper in the middle of Western Colorado. So I was in some ways forced to just keep going. And I loved what I was doing so much. You know, I loved the reporting and I loved the writing that somehow I got through it and I didn't give up. And now that I look back on it, I actually think part of what built resilience in me was the fact that I was spending so much time outside. You know, when you're out in the wilderness, you're watching the cycles of nature, you're watching the leaves fall off the trees in the winter, and you're watching them come back in the spring, the sun comes up every morning, there's something about the metaphors of nature that I think just can give us some staying power. And so... I just kept at it. And eventually, I started publishing in other places. Eventually, I did publish in the New York Times Magazine. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> um, woohoo! Just took a while to crack that nut. But, but yeah, I'm really glad I didn't give up. And so I think, you know, my, my advice there would be, you know, if you love something enough to know that you want to keep doing it, you just have to kind of expect some rejection and some failure and, and just not take it quite so seriously. Just know that it happens. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Florence. You're so welcome. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, and I know you went to Yale undergrad, and you said earlier you were an environmental studies major, and do it all over again based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Okay, good question. Well, so so what I, what I said was actually I was an environmental studies minor. I was an English major and I thought it would be great to do this double major, but it meant that I didn't have a lot of extra time to do some of the courses I really wanted to do or would be fun. So a lot of those environmental studies courses, this is a long time ago, Andrea, they were kind of the same. They were a lot of environmental policy, a lot of environmental science. I felt like I was kind of learning the same thing in many of these classes, but I really felt like I wanted that minor. I wanted to stay in it. And one of my regrets is that I didn't just say, you know what? I've actually learned this. I don't need to have it as a minor. I'd rather go take some great history classes. Right. If I had to do it again, I would have just had more fun. I would have taken the stuff, taken the classes I really wanted to take. And not worried about having it listed on your resume as being a concentration because I don't know, did it ever really matter in your professional no. life? No, it didn't. I mean, it was, it was really helpful to have some foundation in environmental science and policy, but I, I didn't need to take, you know, 12 classes that were all the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lawrence, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I hope everyone goes out and gets or at least orders on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books, The Nature Fix. I hope they listen to your wonderful new podcast, The Three Day Effect, which is available through audible.com. And I sincerely hope that all of you go outside, whether it's now this afternoon, if you're not already out there or in the morning or this weekend, have a fantastic walk or hike or bike or jog, fill in the blank. But thank you so much, Florence, for everything that you've done to help us just get a little smarter about the importance of nature. Oh, thanks so much, Andrea. It's been so much fun. And yes, everybody, take your earbuds out and try to get outside, take a deep breath and have a great time. 
Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.